If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, welcome to Growing Greener. I'm Ara Anderson, and this is my podcast series for Gardeners World magazine, where I'm inviting experts to share their knowledge about how we can all become sustainable gardeners. Through a blend of science-based facts, research, experience, and above all passion, you'll discover how your actions in the garden will make a real difference to the planet. From cutting air miles to boosting biodiversity and soil health, nurturing our own fruit and veg garden gives us so much more than just a tasty harvest. So today I'm talking to food policy guru, Professor Tim Lang, who's also a gardener, president of Garden Organic and a one-time hill farmer. So he's been growing food from all sides. He's passionate about the contribution gardeners can make to a healthier future for food. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Growing Greener. It's so good to have you here. Thank you. Very nice. So looking at your career and the roles you've held, both in government and education, it is beyond clear that you are very passionate about food, not just what we eat, but the whole um, system and the process about how it gets to our plates. And so passionate, in fact, that you founded the Centre of Food Policy at the City of University London. And I hear that you used to be a farmer and you're a keen gardener. But before we get started, I am just going to throw you this line and just see whether you remember this, that um, I heard that about 60 years ago, you told one of your grannies that you'd concrete any garden that you'd had. I thought, let's get that 
on the table. And tell me more about that statement. Well, my granny, that particular granny, was outraged with me. Uh, and I was partly being a, a cussed teenager, perished the thought. Um, but partly also, I was reacting. My parents didn't have a huge garden, but it was an ample garden, sort of third of an acre, which is a lot, but it wasn't in the town. Uh, and uh, I, I was sort of fed up and petulant. But within about eight years, I was gardening. So it was uh, <laughs> typical. It was proof in my own life, let alone anyone else's. I'm sure you were perfect always, Eric. Oh, uh, always, uh, always, always. Always, yes. Everyone always is. Um, but I, I consider it one of the great uh, pleasures of my life, actually, is constantly finding out that I don't know enough and constantly making mistakes and then learning and doing it differently. Uh, it's a complete joy. It's the, it's the longevity of, of gardening skills. Well, what I love is the fact that, you know, I, I always love the one, what I call the 180, even though you was being very uh, tempestuous when you said it, but to sort of make a statement and then be able to do a 180 on that statement and prove the other side that actually you clearly love the land and, and, and the farming and, and the whole of your career you've devoted to um, food. But I think, you know, sort of, and, and the fact that, you know, your granny now, bless her, she can be rested knowing that you did not concrete over um, the garden. But I just wanted to start this conversation with some facts and correct me if I'm wrong that that for our listeners to hear about that you know that the UK agriculture sector produces about 55% of our total food and that six million hectares of that cultivated land in Britain that only nearly three percent is only used for fruit and veg I mean when I found those facts out reading some of your work I was just astounded at the what it meant and in terms of the amount of food that we're importing so you know how do you think that this type of production is affecting the climate change in our environment well you've asked two very important questions there one is that in Britain despite us having this vast landmass um, and a huge amount of what we call grade one land, very good quality soil, good capabilities, and having a very benign climate, why we're not using it more? Let's just park that for a moment. And the second issue you raised is why is so little being grown here when we know we could and should do more if, if, uh, by importing foods from even more stressed lands than ours, we're actually just putting out of sight the damage from growing food elsewhere. And by damage, I mean embedded water. We're using, we're getting food in from countries and areas of countries that are water stressed, that are biodiverse stressed, and so on. And we're not taking any notice of that. Um, now, you and I know as gardeners, intervening as humans into nature, you're going to be causing some problems. The issue is how minimal can you make them? How benign can you make that? And also how can you compensate for that? So if you're turning over the soil and emitting carbon, which one does, how can you sequester carbon on bits that you're not turning over? Those are the sorts of the new questions that we as gardeners need to address now. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that this is, you know, one of the things I'm really interested to talk to you about, you know, in terms of food, where we obviously can go to the shelves, pick up what we want at a supermarket. You know, we know that there are so many people in this country that don't have an outside space and can therefore be quite disconnected from where food comes from. And staggeringly, that we're wasting so much food, about a quarter of the food that's produced is actually wasted. So in terms of, let's go back, like you say, to garden where do we where do we start where do we start in um, our awareness that food production um, around certainly in the UK is is out of kilt where do we start with that well if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions of Britain um, fruit and vegetable production uh, only accounts for about 2.5 percent of all the food emissions and what we consume as eaters so consuming food is, well, it depends how you calculate it, but let's say 20%, 25%. Some recent estimates have said it's actually 30% of what our total emissions are. So cars, transport, holidays, clothes, you name it. Food is a big slice. And what I find really genuinely staggering still, and I've worked on this for decades, is given the good news that growing fruit and vegetables can be compared to, say, uh, turning all of Britain's landmass over to cattle or sheep and destroying everything else, not that we're saying anyone says that, why is so little done on fruit and vegetables? And partly that's why I get out of bed, Arit, in my day job, is because that's an extraordinarily difficult question, actually. It's partly that fruit and vegetable growing doesn't have a lobby particularly, has a bit, but nothing compared to other interests. It's partly that Britain has a long history of imperialism uh, from the 1840s. Governments then, back in the early, mid-19th century, said, well, we don't need to grow food here. We'll just quietly abandon our growing and we'll import it from our empire. And we've got this big navy. Whoops, World War One. Cool difficulties, but they still went back to that that model, and then World War Two. Whoops, problems, and then there was a bit of a rethink. And people like me argue that compared to the rethink of the 1940s, when the government of the day and whoever had won that election, they'd have done it. Uh, they said, "Well, we've got to produce more food here, and let's do it. Let's make sure farmers and growers and horticulturalists do it." Now. We haven't actually got that debate at all, or very little of it. But I think that's bubbling up. And it's why we as gardeners are so important. Why? Because there are millions of us. There are only about 55,000 farmers. But there are, if you take the lowest estimate, 9 million gardeners, 22 million gardens in this country. Uh, And if we all grew a little bit more, it wouldn't necessarily feed us if you're in the tiny garden I live in centre of London, you know, not much room to feed myself or or, our family or household, but we could do a lot more. And the advantages of that are huge. We take control over it. uh, We get the pleasure from it. We learn the skills and we get, above all, freshness. And that's, I think, the joy of gardening, but it's also the hard edge of gardening today. Gardening is about the solutions to the really big problems of the modern world. Climate change, water shortage, biodiversity destruction. Actually, it's 
more horticulture, and that's what gardening is, more horticulture, less agriculture, actually, in one word. That's a big statement I'm making. That is, and we're hearing it here because, I mean, that, you know, so often, you know, horticulture is just thought about as nice flowers and, you know, herbaceous borders and our rolling lawns. So to hear that it really can be at the the, the coalface, if you like, of, of climate change and making a difference, that's quite a sobering and anchoring thought, isn't it, for us gardeners? It is. Well, the, the evidence is, well, evidence, you know, as an academic and scientists always, they're always, you know, there's no simple answer always. But the overwhelming thrust of evidence says that for a country like Britain, if we can grow it, why not? We're importing food from countries which are water-stressed. If you look at where Britain gets a lot of its fruit and vegetables, frankly, we should be helping those countries not to add to their environmental degradation. We've got plenty of land here. The reasons we're not is because of problems of wage labour, actually. The horticultural industries have a really difficult time at getting skilled workers prepared to work for that money. And that's why the soft fruit industry, for example, of great success story in Britain, is is actually planting less because they can't get the labour to cultivate and to, to pick. Well, turn to gardening well the one issue we as gardeners do is we don't pay for ourselves we do it for free so it doesn't matter how much time i spend on my veg garden i'm not costing myself i'm out of that formal economy i'm into the domestic economy i'm into unwaged labor and so the good news about gardening for sustainability is this is ticking so many boxes that we should be just doing more of it. You know, this is a big leap that we need to take now and to embed it into what do we do uh, and teach our kids, grandchildren, don't you know, take any notice if uh, your, your, your grandchild says, like I did to my granny, uh, I'm going to concrete over my garden. Ignore them. Just keep on showing them. Keep on showing them. Uh, and they'll come to it. They'll come to it. Yeah, and I think that, I just love that. I could just still hear that sentence in my head about you and the, and the concrete. But I think that what I like what you're saying is the fact that, you know, look, I know that you you have done a lot of work in policy, okay? And, and for some people, that is just not our world. We just want to be able to go out, open our back door and get on with it, basically. And so I think that you were sort of what you were saying earlier with regards to how the war, you know, the Second World War, for example, you know, there was there was a shift to how we had to to have our food. There was a dig dig for victory, if you like. It almost feels like you said that bubbling up as if we kind of almost need to to get that sort of that sort of energy behind us again, almost in terms of utilising our gardens. I, I think we do. I, I'm not an Armageddonist. I, I know exactly why you you refer back to sort of dig for victory. It's it's hardwired into sort of a British consciousness of doing the right thing. But uh, things are dire, let me be very clear. Uh, The data on greenhouse gases, the data on biodiversity loss, on embedded water, on soil damage and things, uh, is just irrefutable. Uh, We've got to do something about it. We actually haven't got much time. 
But gardening is the good news. It can be very quick. And what we eat is very quick. We don't need to wait 20 years for new technologies to come in. We know how to garden. We can garden better or worse for climate change. We can be more sustainable or less sustainable. But that gardening is good news. It's just overwhelming absolutely overwhelming. We don't need to wait for government. We don't need to wait for someone else. Uh, if you're in a tower block and you haven't got access to uh, an allotment, well, that does need public pressure. That does need land to be made available. And people like me, that's what I do, is pressurise councils and developments not to just have no access to gardening, but to start building in green spaces for people to grow, not just to look at the, the birds and bees. Um, and that is a very positive message, Arad. It's something that gets me out of bed with great hope every day. I think about the garden every day. Oh, that's just that's just brilliant. I, lo- I love it. And I really do love the can-do uh, vibe to all of this because it is focusing on what we can do and and less about what we, we can't. And, and we are, you know, it's great. We have got, obviously, people like yourselves that are, are pushing at the other end. So if we come back to the actual garden, and interestingly, you talked about tower blocks. Obviously, we know that there has been a resurgence of indoor plants, which hopefully that's helped some people to connect to nature from the interior. But say on that balcony, where, where do we start? If we've got a balcony or a very small patch, where how can we be involved in our fruit and veg um, production to, to help? Well, you're not going to feed yourself on a balcony unless you've got a very big balcony or possibly roof garden. But the thing that you can do, and lots of people do this, is actually it's the herbs. For me, the joy is having something from one's garden. Today, my wife and I made a, a meal. We've got a grandson living with us at the moment. And the, the thing from our garden was garlic, kept uh, harvested last year and kept in the shed. So we always like to have something from the garden. Herbs is what one can grow on a balcony. Uh, and that's lovely. And they're pretty quick. And you can grow them in a pot and you can have sequences as one is getting to the end of its life, you can be growing something else. And it's just that daily routine of reminding ourselves, uh, someone grows this, what I get in a supermarket or on the shop, and I can get a little bit of skill and a bit of pleasure of just having a little bit of garnish, some some parsley, some uh, uh, some greenery of some sort is always good. And those herbs are very nice they're very tasty yeah and that's great because I think there is that feeling that you want to feel involved and you know I'm always very keen keen to make sure that you know when, when talking about gardens it can be as small as a balcony for some people that is their space but obviously if you if you have got a slightly bigger garden let's talk about organic gardening and you know obviously over the years you know you've obviously seen a lot go on um, of different movements and things what, what's your take on organic gardening? Well I'm a I'm an organic gardener but do I think organic uh, gardening has got the answer to everything? No, but it's a huge step forward and huge step forward in two very significant ways. One is that you stop using pesticides uh, and artificial fertilizers. The artificial fertilizers are huge sources of energy. And if you look at the national accounts of uh, Great Britain, uh, importing of fertilizers uh, is a very big carbon footprint. So you get rid of that. And the joy of not using pesticides is that you're 
immediately stopping the destruction of insects and those microorganisms that you've never even heard of and barely know and certainly don't see. Mm. That is a huge plus. There is an additional plus, which is that you have to be more skilled. You can't use those pesticides and chemical armory as a quick fix. Uh, Quick fixes backfire. And what we're finding is that profligate use of pesticides is now backfired. And we're seeing it on all sorts of fronts. Uh, And the biodiversity specialists are very clear about that. Uh, And not least, it's not good for the worker. And in the case of gardening, it horrifies me, Arit, how Mm. I see people buying chemical concoctions they haven't a clue they don't use gloves they don't even have a pretense of protecting themselves and if they were doing it on a field scale it it would be breaking health and safety regulations and yet gardeners do it in without thinking about it frankly organic gardening is plus 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 when it comes to that but why do i say there are limits, it's because organic gardening is fantastic, but has to go even further than we've already developed it. We've got to be thinking about total supply chains. Gardening is not all of the food system. The transportation, what's organic transportation? Well, bicycling, yeah. Uh, But, you know, if you look at the British food system, uh, food is one of the biggest uses of the road network. Food travels vast distances. Now, there's a complicated argument there, you know, to grow to grow strawberries in midwinter and to grow it in a plastic greenhouse powered by nuclear power stations, well, it's not exactly ecologically friendly. It can be better if you want to have strawberries in midwinter to have them come on a truck from where they're grown outdoors. But the truth of the matter Arid is, mm. and gardeners know this, is that food is seasonal. Uh, and that's why I say organics doesn't have all the answers. Uh, the, the cultural issue has to be bolted on to organics if we're to be more sustainable. So thinking about when does when is a food in season is part of the relearning we've got to do in the 21st century of putting food into its proper place. I always say we've, we've turned animals into our competitors, and there's a huge argument, I'm sure you know, uh, that goes on about animal production and dairy production. And basically the issue is not about that animals are bad or farm animals are bad. It depends how they're reared and how extensive it is, how, how much of them there are. And I always summarise that argument as basically we've got to get farm animals back into their ecological niche, to where mm-hmm. they're useful rather, rather than being the purpose of land. Huge amounts of land in Britain, indeed worldwide, grows grain to then feed to animals. This is a ludicrously inefficient and slow method of converting the energy from the land into energy for us in the mm-hmm. form of food. So gardening is the good news. I keep on saying it. Gardening is the good news, but not if we spray everything to kingdom come, not if we buy fertilizers in on the back. Now, here's some of the difficulties for gardening, particularly in towns. Mm -hmm. Composting becomes important. That's where we use the waste. You rightly said Britain has this terrible 
terrible record of food waste. Partly that's to do with the sales machine and just a sheer throughput of, of supermarkets. Partly it's how we've changed our lives and how we buy food. But partly it's that we're not using waste. In nature, there is no such thing as waste, Eric. You and I know that. Trees don't waste their leaves. They fall and they get recycled. They go back into the earth. The worms use them. The insects, the microbes operate. And it's the living soil that matters so much. And frankly, that's what we need to do. There have been attempts in Britain uh, to get uh, composting through councils and so on. But I I used to be the government commissioner on food and natural resources Uh from 2006 to 2011, and we barely scratched it to try and get one national system for recycling the waste. And we haven't done it. And frankly, gardeners need support in that. So um, I don't expect everyone to be able to recycle and compost. If you're up a tower block, how on earth can you do that? You're dependent upon your 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 green waste to go elsewhere and to be recycled. So that's where the world of policy kicks in. There's a limit to what gardeners can do, Arid. And so yeah. we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it. Uh, just try and make it the good news wherever we are, whatever our circumstances. Well, you've just, I mean, you've you've really raised, I think, some really easy and key points there because, you know, it starts about how we started talking about pesticides and and then we end up talking about waste. But there was just natural links to that, you know, in terms of trying to do quick fixes and get rid of that bug and I want to grow that quickly and then waste the food. You know, it, it it is all connected. And I want to just ask you this because One of the things that I find as, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to talk about sustainability, talk to experts like yourself, and there's this kind of dichotomy with time. And and you'll get this when I say in a minute. So obviously at the minute, we've got a gun at our heads, if you like, with regards to how the the planet is. And and it's brilliant to hear that gardening can be um, right at the centre of things. But we're on this chase as well, aren't we, of of wanting everything now. And in what I'm seeing is obviously sustainability takes time. To be sustainable is a process. And things like, as you mentioned earlier, being in tune with food cycles, you know, foods that are in season – what's what's happened to the fact that we've kind of gone out of kilt with time and can you do you feel that that's had an impact on the climate and how we are now on on how we live now i should say well you you keep using and i do too the word we here's where you have to be quite serious analyst about it um the impact of the rich world britain compared to, say, malawi or south africa or parts of the far east is huge our footprint, we use this analogy of a footprint, how deep is your the weight of what you do going into the earth? The footprint of the rich world is huge compared to the poor world. A model of uh, food modernity, I'm sorry if that sounds pompous, but sort of what progress looks like for food was laid down in the 1940s actually 40s and 50s based upon 1930s science and it said the world's problems will be resolved if we just produce more food and we will do it as intensively as we can we will unleash the chemical armory we will intensify production and make land more productive producing more faster quicker bigger faster turn through, et cetera, et cetera. That's the model that we're now having to rethink. We 
don't have a lot of time if we're taking the data on climate change very seriously, but we have got time. I was part of a team that looked at a very simple question that was asked by the medical journal, The Lancet. Can we feed 9, 10 billion people sustainably by 2050 without destroying everything, you know, biodiversity, etc., water, air quality? And the answer was yes, we can do. But it means eating very differently to how the rich world eats. Uh, it means dramatically cutting what the British consume in terms of meat and dairy and just dramatically <laughs> double that uh, uh, compared to what an American, North American uh, consumes. What it means is probably uh, in cultural terms, it means eating more simply, eating much more based upon fruit and vegetables and grains, plants in other words. And if you want to eat meat and dairy, consume them as as feast day foods, if you like. The problem is we've made feast day foods everyday foods and we've denatured them in that process. And so shifting that, I'm absolutely with you, Eric, is not something you can just click and just do that tomorrow. That's about changing literally our taste buds, what we expect. It's like if you're a junkie on sugar, it's very hard to just give it up. It's much easier to take three or four years to phase down the amount you put into food. It's the same with salt. You can take salt out of food very slowly. And, and then if you put it back to what it was four or five years earlier, you think, wow, that tastes salty. That's what we've got to do on sustainability. Just move steadily and incrementally. And then we'll find in 15 years time, my goodness, did we do that? Did we eat and live like that? I don't believe it. Well, that's what we've got to do. And it's doable, that. We know that that works, and we know it can be done. But it can't be done by you or I just saying, oh, I'm going to do that. It's quite hard to do that. If it's a we do that, if it's all of society or enough of society, then it starts making a difference. Then the impact goes down. Then the embedded water goes down. Then the greenhouse gas emissions go down. Then the land use improves and you can start reducing your land footprint and allow more space for biodiversity. And that applies at the garden scale, Arid. You know, if, if, if you were to have a five-acre garden and you kept a cow on it, well, it'd be using three or four of those acres. Uh, if you took the cow off and just still did your one acre of horticulture uh, and you could wild and rewild that four acres, wow, would that be having an amazingly good impact. So, you know, I'm trying to give examples of how we can do it. Slow but sure but very ruthlessly is my view. No, that's great. I mean, obviously, there's no cow in my back garden. <laughs> I, have a, I have a small Victorian back garden, but but the sentiment of the borders that I have, which are quite small, it, it means I can I can rethink about what's in those borders. Of course, I love the ornamental flowers, of course, and you know, understanding that they help with um, biodiversity in the garden, but. It, it definitely gets you thinking about how much of that garden you could turn over to, even if I, even if I or we are producing our own 
single lettuce every week. It's one less lettuce that's being produced, I, I guess. It, it, it is. And I think we can do, uh, I, I, I too, we have a, well, a hundred foot garden, but it's north facing, not ideal for, for growing vegetables. So actually the bottom of the garden, so the furthest north, which gets the most light, is where the vegetables are grown in a classic four-course rotation. But on the edges, in the hedges, we've got espaliered fruit trees going up and fruits. So the, the flowering for us is we have a small front garden. That's where the flowers go. And actually, I'm looking at it here. It's We've got, believe it or not, a pomegranate growing in our front garden in London. I know, amazing. Uh, and, and they get sort of the size of clementines. They're just about getting to a point where uh, we, we can get some seeds out of them. Uh, but it's the beauty of it, you know. But I'm someone who thinks vegetables and fruit are beautiful. I mean, we've got a quince tree in, in our garden, and which I've espaliered. I mean, most people would say you shouldn't espalier a quince tree. But the, the, the flowers on the quince are just, well, I wouldn't say to die for. They're just, you want to live to see them every year. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, like, yeah, your passion just so comes through there and and in terms of making sure that we can look at our space however small whether it's starting with a herb on a balcony small london or urban gardens that that we have to think about espalier or you know um cordon trees there are different um fruit trees that can be grown that take up literally about one and a half meters obviously tim you know we know that there's varied space that people have within their gardens and the majority of those gardeners in the uk have got reasonably small plots if somebody's thinking about trying to get more food into their garden what would be your top tips don't have a lawn uh, and probably I'm going to offend most sort of old diehard Brits. Um, I think lawns are for sheep. But having said that, we've got a tiny lawn because it's just outside the back of the house and there's very little light on it. Um, uh, so, so it's just there because it's there. Uh, but it's diminished over time. Uh, so I'd say get rid of your lawn. Um, if you've got light, um, grow things that give you pleasure. Um, and uh, okay, I can see the point of uh, the greenery if you've got absolutely none. And kids, certainly. The problem is very often for kids, it's a place to kick a football about or to play. And that's understandable. I understand that. But the moment your kids are grown up, get rid of that lawn. Yeah. Dig it up, dig it up, grow something nice. Yeah, I have to say over the, the years and, you know, and I, there's, it's, it's no secret that I kind of my garden has been my teacher since crossing over from the land of fashion and, and arriving with a lawn uh, and the skinny border, you know, the skinny classic skinny border. And then over the years, it's been nibbled at. <laughs> and to the fact that, yes, now it's gone and the, the small patch of uh, of space that I do have is is graveled and soon I'll be into planting into that I'm sure as well so no, yeah probably, we'll probably fall out over gravel I always <laughs> worry I, will, I always worry about gravel you see people uh, a lot paving over front gardens or uh, um, the one that really does trouble me is artificial green lawns on the front oh dear let the earth breathe yes that really is a rule for gardening let the earth breathe uh, Put plants on it, let it mulch it, uh, grow something on it that allows it to breathe. Don't don't put a plastic membrane down and then gravel, because you end up badly having to weed it. And uh, you know, nature wants to fill that vacuum. Um, 
So uh, why not let it grow to start with? And I think that, you know, people um, get worried about, you know, getting things wrong, as we all do, you know, and and, and not being big uh, veg growers. Um, you know, what's your take in terms of us being uh, more comfortable or, or more sustainable, say, like growing from seed? Where where should we go from with that? Is that is that the way forward? I, I, I think one of the most wonderful projects I've seen from the gardening organisation I'm a member of and also president of Garden Organic was uh, in what's become a very successful, huge scheme with school meals uh, of, of trying to get school meals sort of taken in-house and and cooked from uh, sort of good seasonal and, and local uh, produce. Uh, but that project also had a, a front end, which was encouraging the children in the school to grow uh, grow things. And the, the role of a school gardener, just seeing kids' faces light up with that process of planting and it growing and then it emerging, it's fabulous. And getting that excitement, I think, is a very big ask uh, of governments and local authorities and head teachers, actually. Uh, and we can do a lot. I've traveled the world a lot in my job, a great privilege, but I will never, ever forget going to the very north of Russia, uh, not long after it opened up, after the uh, Cold War theoretically came to an end, and seeing some of the best tended gardens I've ever seen in my life anywhere on the planet, uh, because their lives depended on it. Uh, it was just immaculate. They were immaculately run. This was in Archangel, Archangel uh, in English. Just remarkable. Uh, and uh, that came out of necessity. And partly in Britain, uh, uh, we're living in the illusion that we haven't got necessity to grow our food better and more sustainably. We're, we're in the fantasy that uh, the supermarket is what feeds us. Supermarkets don't feed us, they just sell us the food. Uh, this great big system that people like me call the food system is actually what feeds us and it does it in a very distorted way some very good things have happened lots of improvements compared to 100 years ago but some of those apparent improvements are now the, what we recognize are the problem uh, we now know a lot more Arid, about what are the criteria by which to judge a good food system and, and we can apply those to gardening actually it's about quality it's about the environmental impact it's about the health the impact not just eating but also our well-being our thinking uh how, how happy we are uh do we rest i go into my garden and sometimes find I'm, I'm staring into space for 10 minutes you know i can't do that as a professor you know <laughs> people think we professors spend all our time staring into space actually we're madly reading and writing um, <laughs> but the garden is where you can chill and think and reflect um, and it's also about gardening is also about uh, a very pompous English word, governance, how things are managed, how the decisions are taken. And partly I as a gardener and you as a gardener and our listeners, uh, they do make decisions what to grow, which seeds and which company to buy them from and how to grow them, when to plant them. But partly there's a big hinterland that shapes what we do. Uh, and I, I again, I, I've seen wonderful projects of where... Uh, immigrants to Britain uh, being taken really seriously for their gardening skills. 
that they're bringing seeds in and trying out, experimenting on growing what uh, uh, sort of conventional Brits would think, oh, you can't grow that, that's not proper. And suddenly this cornucopia occurring because different experimentation is going on. Uh, and that's one of the joys of gardening that I really would like to stress. It's the experimentation. Every year I do things and think, oh, gosh, that didn't work. But you've got another year to try. Uh, and that's part of the joy of it, that it's long term. Uh, but back to our serious questions of sustainability, I see sustainability as partly reskilling ourselves as gardeners, partly doing it with others. Just if I or you, Arit, do the right thing, it's not enough. It's got to be at a mass population scale because the impact of 7 billion people on the planet is huge. Unless there is a big population shift in behavior and how we eat and consume, uh, and particularly in the rich world, and particularly in the rich in the rich world, uh, then, frankly, we won't be lowering our carbon footprints, we won't be lowering our embedded waters. Uh, and I have to say, I was a child brought up partly in India. Uh, and I say this, one of, you know, when I've been very ill in my life with cancer. Uh, and when I was ill and in hospital operated on, all I wanted to eat was rice and dal. Well, <laughs> you don't grow rice and dal in Britain. Well, actually, you can grow dal. It's now being grown. Uh, good pulses can be grown. The wonderful uh, Hodmodons, the experimental group uh, that's grown and grown and grown in, in East Anglia, uh, show us the way. You can get a very good dal from British-made pulses, British-grown pulses. Um, but the embedded water, if I was to have Indian-grown dal and Indian-grown rice from a country which is water-stressed. Now, that is a question of ethics. So I don't want to throw that out that sustainability is all about greenhouse gases and things. There is an element of ethics, actually, of morality. How I eat or you eat or how we eat has a big impact if we're dragging in very stressed areas and very low paid uh, and sometimes non-paid at all uh, labour into making us feel happy. Uh, and that's one of the complications of the modern food system. You go into a supermarket or a hypermarket, 30,000 items. How can, I'm a professor of food policy. I cannot possibly know what is behind all of those. And none of us do. Uh, if you grow it yourself, you know what's gone into it and you know, you know, what's behind it. So the story in our food is partly one of the joys of gardening. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you are so inspiring. I mean, I think you have been able to convey that that gardens, we know that gardens are good for us, but you've just conveyed how they are essential they are essential in, in, in our modern world today. And, and that I hope that all of the listeners can really feel empowered to know that their garden can make a difference, that their garden can, can contribute to not only the, their own uh, environment around them, that they can contribute to their health as well. And I, I've come away with so many different things from um, our conversation so far. I want to ask you one thing. What one change should we all be making now to grow better food? 
Well, oh, that's a that's a very interesting question. I'm probably going to really irritate you. Harry. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's one thing that will make sustainability in gardening better. I think there's a, a multitude of things. It's a package, if you like. Um, it's about how we grow. So get rid of those and never buy any more those pesticides and insecticides. Learn to do things differently, that's a second. Um, Thinking about the long-term consequences is a third. Uh, But I think also experimentation uh, is is a fourth. And the fifth, I would say, is just keep your eye on the pleasure. (laughs) That's a a lovely one to finish on. Well, we have learned so much, and I use the word we because I'm sure there's so many people out there that have uh, taken so much away from this conversation, Tim. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Eric. Very nice to meet you too. Of course, Thank we you. all you get this all the time. People see you on the telly and they think they know you. But it's very <laughs> nice to talk with you. Oh, it's been um, great. Yeah, it's been very nice. Thank you. A great pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to me, Ara Anderson, on the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. You can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it. Rate us in your podcast provider app. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify or Acast to never miss an episode. See you next time. <laughs>